Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 909 on this Wednesday morning, February 7th. Lindsay Cohn joins us. We spoke to her last week for a little bit. We wanted to have her back on for an hour, associate professor in the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College, to talk about the U.S. strikes in the Middle East, how we got to this point, what happens next. And I'm going to bring the audience into it at 504-260-1870. There are no dumb questions, okay? Because I think if we're going to discuss something that's important, it, it, it's kind of relevant to know what the hell we're talking about. It can't hurt. With that, we welcome in Lindsay Cohen. Uh, Cohen. Good morning, Professor. How are you? Good morning, Tommy. I'm doing well. How are you? I'm well. You have some uh, New Orleans roots, don't you? Well, yeah. Yeah, you could say that. Not born and bred, but I went to high school there, lived there for about five years. So, yeah, I lived on the Best Bank. Uh, Best Bank, get out. Where at? <laughs> yes, I do. Uh, Algiers. Get out! Get away! What's new? What street? What area? Aurora? Where? Old Algiers? Uh, Tennyson. Lived on Tennyson Place. Wow! Just off, of, just off of De Gaulle. I lived on Plymouth for a long time, then moved to Belche. So there you go. Oh, uh, Lindsey Kahn. I shouldn't have said Cohn. I'm sorry, Lindsey Kahn. Uh, okay. We know we got Mardi Gras coming up. When's the last time you've been back from Mardi Gras? Did you like it or not? Oh, you know what? I haven't been back from Mardi Gras for a really long time. I don't deal well with crowds. <laughs> right. But, uh, you know, when I lived there, I was in high school there, and so, of course, I was there every year. It's a little bit different. And where are you from originally with the accent? I'm just trying to figure it out. All over the place. My father was a Marine, which is why we were uh, we were stationed at the Naval Support Activity um, Base that used to be there in New Orleans. Uh, but I moved around my whole life. The, the accent is uh, from when... We moved to England when I was very small, and uh, five-year-olds are a brutal bunch. Well, it's delightful. I'm, I hope you had a somewhat of a good time of it. Um, let's talk about the the latest with um, what's going on with Iran and Iran threatening the some ships that they say are spy ships. Give us the latest, and then we'll go back and get some context in the history of this because you spend the hour with us, which we appreciate. Sure. So what's happening right now is what I would call an escalation um, of uh, sort of um, the situation in the Middle East uh, right now started with the Hamas um, attack on Israel on October 7th of of last year. Um, And then that escalated with the Israeli response and then a number of uh, militias and and other groups in the region that um, uh, support the Palestinian cause have been firing on both Israeli and U.S. targets in the region uh, in support of the Palestinians. Um, And then one of those strikes, as we talked about last week, one of those strikes killed three American service members. 
uh, at a base in Jordan. And the Biden administration responded to that by striking um, several targets. I mean, several is an understatement. They struck nearly 100 targets in uh, Syria and Iraq, um, killing several people. Um, and uh, those, and, and of course, have been responding also to the Houthi missile attacks in Yemen. Um, that response um, was an attempt at calculation by the Biden administration. We can talk about whether it was a good calculation. Uh, but what is happening now is a, is a retaliation against that. So Iran is trying to find ways to show that the U.S. can't just do that with no response from them. But Iran is doing the same calculation that the U.S. is, which is trying to show that, you know, any attack will, will be responded to, but they don't want a regional war. So let's talk about the, the calculation that went into the response and, and was it a good calculation or not? I mean, so these I should I should make clear. These are my personal views. Everything you hear is my personal view. It does not represent the views of the U.S. Naval War College or the Navy or any other organ of the U.S. government. This is just me. Um, that being said, um, so Biden is playing what we call a two-level game, which means he's trying to satisfy both a domestic audience and the international or regional audience that he's dealing with. So he's having to make sort of he's trying to thread the needle between a domestic audience, um, largely, uh, you know, it's an election year. He's dealing with uh, threats from the right. Uh, and the right, as we spoke about last week, really wants to see Iran hit hard. And they want, you know, they, they consider Iran to be sort of the source of all of these attacks, regardless of who actually carries them out. And they want Iran hit. They want Iran to feel pain. Um, so he's got that pressure on him. And he also, you know, again, election year, he has to show that you can't kill American service members without some kind of response. So he's got that pressure to do sort of do something and do something big. On the other hand, he's trying to deal with the regional situation, which is that he doesn't want a larger war in the region. He doesn't want to escalate violence uh, in the region. So the calculation was how to hit them hard enough to show that he's doing enough and maybe even deter them from, from retaliating, but not hit them so hard that they would retaliate and escalate in the region. I personally think he overstepped that a little bit. I think he leaned a little too hard towards the show the domestic audience that I've done something. Um, and I think we see that in the fact that, that uh, you know, retaliation is stepping up. I mean, time will tell. Uh, he may have calculated this just right. But I think that, you know, by striking targets in Iraq rather than just Syria, he, um, he, he upped things instead of, instead of just keeping them level. For the hawks that are, you know, let's uh, nuke Iran and, and, and the different things like that, that, that want mm -hmm. to see uh, a complete and total devastation of Iran. And, um, talk about the international and regional part of this, the allies that we have in that area, the, the quasi-allies that we have in that area, and how important that it is that we do have some allies in that area and don't go to war with the entire region and how that is interlaced with their relations with Iran, correct? Yes, yeah. <laughs> so that's a lot. Uh, Lindsay, please, wherever you feel comfortable, jump in. <laughs> well, okay. So um, the, the difficulty in the, in the Middle East is that what you've got is 
obviously, number one, it's a strategic region because of the resources there um, in terms of, you know, oil um, and other natural um, or fossil fuels. Number two, it's a strategic location in that so much of the world shipping goes through, and particularly the world shipping of oil, which nearly every country in the world needs, goes through a couple of maritime choke points like the Suez Canal, the Bab al-Mandab, which is the bottom of the Red Sea, um, and the, uh, you know, the, the Persian Gulf. Um, so much of the world shipping goes through there that these are really important strategic locations. So the Middle East is important to the United States, and who controls the Middle East is important to the United States. What you have in the Middle East, though, is, a, is several states that are, you know, about the same size in terms of their overall power, right? They're, you know, military, economic, political, etc. And all of those states are competing with each other for sort of dominance of the region. And what states are uh, those, if you can, Professor? Sure. Uh, so Iran is one of them. Turkey is one of them. Egypt was one of them. It's not as much of a player anymore. Saudi Arabia. Um, those are the big ones. Iraq used to be a player in this, but then we kind of crushed it. So Iraq, not a player anymore. Um, but yeah, the big ones are Iran, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia. Um, and none of them can really quite dominate things by themselves. So they're all constantly trying to build coalitions, right? And the U.S. tends to like to put a thumb on these weights to try and make sure that the coalition that we don't like doesn't get dominance. So that's kind of the, the situation in the region. And the Israel-Palestine thing is central to this competition in the region. Um, one of the things that uh, Iran, for example, uses to sort of offset some of its weaknesses, like the fact that it's Persian and Shia, which most of the region is not, they try to use sort of their position as the only remaining champions of the Palestinians to appeal to the, the general population of the region, whereas they can accuse, you know, the Saudi government, for example, of colluding with, uh, with the United States and colluding with Israel and things like that. So the Israel-Palestine fight is central to the competition for regional dominance that is at the center of every government's calculations. So the United States needs the cooperation of Turkey, Egypt, obviously Saudi Arabia, so we support them, but yet behind our backs, they got their own deals going, correct? Well, yeah. And I mean, it's not really behind our backs. Like, that's where they live, right? Well, that's true. So for, the, for them, this is the most important stuff. You know, the region is important to the United States because it has things we want and because, you know, it's economically important. Um, for them, this is where they live, uh, and this is their livelihoods and, and, you know, their access to wealth and, and power. Let me clarify that statement. I guess what I meant was vis-a-vis the aid that we give to these countries? Yes. Yeah. Well, we give them aid because we um, want them to do certain things, right? Um, so we give them aid because we think that they will behave in ways that we want them to, which is, of course, the same calculus that all of them have. You know, Iran gives these groups aid, aid because it wants them to do things that are in its interests. The UAE, or Qatar, for example, supports Hamas because it wants them to do things that benefit its interests. Yeah, so that's, yeah. I, I'm going to take give you a couple of wild card questions as they pop into my mind, if that's all right, <laughs> Professor, and I hope it's okay. Of course. But I, I don't want to get anybody here, because you know how we're a heavy oil and gas industry mad at me, and I'm not ad advocating that this could happen. I'm just playing the game of what if, okay? Okay. What if, 
uh, John Galt, going back to Atlas Shrugged, were to develop a perpetual energy machine and oil and gas were no longer needed. What would that mean to that region? And and it's a, a side way, I guess, of asking the importance of oil and gas in all of this. Yeah, so that entire region has for a long time survived mainly on the income from oil and gas. Um, they are what in political economy you call rentier states, which means the government gets most of its income from the sale of these natural resources and the government then distributes that income in the form of subsidies to the population, right? So subsidized housing, subsidized food, subsidized um, gas, right? And and that is how most of those um, governments maintain their stability and legitimacy. If the price of that commodity drops, right, if demand for that commodity drops— Goes away. I'm but, just saying we're playing what if. There's no more okay. need for oil and gas. There's an alternative right. energy source that is automatically renewing. All right, it goes away entirely. Basically, most of those governments collapse. Okay. Um, and so you've got a couple, like the UAE, for example, um, has obviously been trying to diversify its economy for quite some time, going to tourism, uh, other sources of income. The other country, so Saudi Arabia knows that it needs to do this, but it's been slower to try to do it. Um, Libya, obviously, is in complete wreck. Um, you know, some of the other countries... Uh, recognize that they need to diversify their economies, um, but they haven't quite been able to do it. Iran used to have a very diversified economy, but has been under sanctions for a really long time, and it's been difficult for Iran to diversify. So, um, you know, what you've got is, like, if we had that scenario, you would basically have complete chaos in the Middle East and... Um, the U.S. would probably not be interested anymore. That's my question. Would we care at all about what happened there? Probably not, okay. no. Although, I mean, we, we would still care about the fate of Israel. Um, I think there's, there's enough domestic, um, you know, there's enough domestic interest in the fate of Israel that we would still care about, you know, their survival. Um, but we would not really care anymore about who sort of dominated the Middle East. Because we're clear, we're there for the oil, to be clear. Yeah, primarily the the oil and as I said the um, the strategic shipping lanes. the strategic shipping yeah. lanes yeah but but which carry a lot of oil which would then be less important as well correct if the oil wasn't needed correct absolutely although I, you know I do have to say like most of the world ship a huge amount of the world shipping goes through the Suez Canal okay. uh, not just energy. Gotcha. Let me take a break. We'll pick it up when we come back. Talking to Professor Lindsey Kahn, an associate professor in the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College. Spent some time in Algiers on the West Bank, so she knows a little bit about New Orleans as well. You got any questions or comments? We're going to talk about, uh, when we come back, I want to talk about how we got here with Iran and the Shah and and the hostage crisis and everything else because nothing's a snapshot. It's a motion picture, right? So we got to talk about how that led to where we are today, 922. Tommy Tucker back in a flash, WWL. 929, spending an hour with Lindsey Kahn, Associate Professor in the National Security Affairs Department at the U.S. Naval War College, trying to figure out what's going on in Iran and, and get the underpinnings and context on that. Lindsey, if if the Shah is still in power, let's take me take me back to those days, if you will. At what point did the Middle East change, and, and, and what role did Iran and the Shah have in that when the Shah was disposed by the mullah? Yeah, so um, I think we might want to go back a, right before the Shah. Sure. Let's um, do that. <laughs> so, 
So, um, you know, Iran was a monarchy, the Shah was the king, but Iran also had a parliament and the parliament uh, would elect a prime minister who, you know, didn't have full power, but had some power. And Iran, uh, the the Iranian parliament um, elected a man named Mossadegh um, as prime minister in uh, 1951. Um, And he was somebody that, um, well, to make a long story short, one of the things he did was nationalize the oil industry in Iran. And the oil industry in Iran was owned almost entirely by the British. It's actually BP, British Petroleum. Mm-hmm. Um, this made the British very angry. It also alarmed the Americans because it seemed kind of communist, even though Mossadegh was, was anti-communist, but he was socialist, right? He was nationalizing stuff. Anyway, Let me, let me jump so, in for one second. Yeah. Similar to what happened in Venezuela? Um, kind of, yes, okay. except that what happened in Venezuela was, was yes, so nationalized the oil industry. Right. In other words, took control of it. Um, everybody who owned shares in that business, it, you know, instantaneously overnight had no money gotcha. um, coming from that. So the U.S. and the U.K., um, Mossadegh had, had his own enemies within Iran. It's not like he was doing great until the U.S. and the U.K. intervened. Um, but the U.S. and the U.K. supported a coup ousting Mossadegh. Um, And when he was ousted, the Shah, who had been in power the whole time as the king, basically took over the entire government, including the powers that had belonged to the prime minister. And we liked that because the Shah was a friend of ours, and the Shah renegotiated the oil and and, um, gave not only gave shares of the oil back to the British, but also included the United States. So the United States actually got control of some Iranian oil. To be clear for one second, Professor, this had nothing to do— with democracy, this had nothing to do with the people of Iran. This was all about the U.S. protecting its access to oil. Accurate? Protecting its access to oil and also opposing communism, okay. right, and opposing opposing Soviet influence, right? So um, the Shah was, you know, at this point in time, we saw Iran as a major bulwark against Soviet influence in the Middle East. Okay. Um, so, yes, oil and against Soviet influence. So uh, the Shah was our buddy. He he did things that we liked, and and he supported our interests in the Middle East against people like Saddam Hussein, for example, in Iraq. Um, but he uh, was not necessarily popular at home. He did implement some, um, you know, reforms that that we would call liberal, and that I think a lot of Iranian people liked. But he also had a massively brutal secret police mm. called the Savak. Um, and they captured and tortured and disappeared people and, you know, were, were generally not very popular. So in 1979, the Shah's health is declining. Um, people are very unhappy with U.S. influence. They, they see the Shah as a U.S. puppet. They're not happy about that because they're a sovereign people and they want to run their own lives. Um, long story short, the Shah steps down and flees the country. Um, and the uh, Khomeini, who was in exile, comes back. 79, revolution- we're talking about, right? Yes, okay. 1979, and the revolution happens. The Shah flees to the United States. Um, normally, this would seem like an okay thing because he had cancer and he was seeking treatment, but the Iranians wanted him back to stand trial for crimes, and the U.S. wouldn't get him back. So that made them angry as well. Um, so that's kind of the root of why the current Iranian regime really, really, really doesn't like the United States. And let me go back um, one second, if I can, Professor, and that is sure. to what is the role of religion in all of this? Is it about persecution by the Shah of the Iranian people and his secret police, or is it about, or is it simultaneously religion and um, 
Islam taking over or, or at least becoming more important to people and the religious leaders getting more power? Take me through that. Yeah, so the Shah was more secular, right? Um, he and, and he was implementing some reforms that, as I mentioned, might be considered liberal. Uh, and if you are a very conservative Muslim cleric, like the Ayatollah Khomeini, um, you would see that as degeneracy. Uh, now, you know, many, many Iranian people were perfectly happy with those kinds of reforms. But as you know, every country has domestic politics. Every country has parties within it who want to be who want to live one way, and other parties who want to live a different way. The revolution was the um, you know a, a win for the people in Iran who wanted Iran to be a conservative Islamic republic. And by Islamic republic, what I mean is that the laws are derived from. Um, a specific group of people's interpretation of Islamic law, mm-hmm. as opposed to a democratic system where the people would determine what laws they want. Gotcha. I'm listening. Yeah. So, so in that sense, yes, it was a win for sort of the religious factions, um, but they it, it was not. It certainly wasn't a Sunni Shia thing, right? They were all Shia. Um, it was mostly a win for a party that wanted Iran to be a more conservative place run along the lines of religious law and a less Western liberal place run along democratic lines. And if you were to look at a watershed of the U.S. becoming the great Satan in Iranian eyes, it would be the Shah coming here for treatment? Uh, yes. I mean, the whole... The exile, whole becoming here in exile. Yeah. Yes, coming here in exile, um, us not giving him back. Um, us having interfered, you know, us having deposed Mossadegh and, and sort of installed the Shah and kept him going while he was being so horrible, yes. Okay. So let me take a break. We'll, our eyes will deglaze. and <laughs> No, but you're doing a great job of explaining it seriously. And then we'll talk about moving forward, how important it is that the United States tread this line. I'm not talking about President Biden, former President Trump, anybody. I'm talking about just that the United States— uh, balance this response proportionately so that they don't let Iran getting away get away with killing U.S. troops, but yet they don't upset the delicate balance that exists in the Middle East. Accurate? Yep. All right, we'll pick it up there. We come back. Lindsey Connor, guest, associate professor, National Security and Affairs Department of the U.S. Naval War College. For those of you that think bombing Iran is the answer, that there are simple solutions to complex problems, there are not because— And again, it goes back to what um, Colin Powell said about Iraq. If you break it, you own it. It'd be the same thing with Iran. 936-24 till 10. Traffic now. WWL. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.
9.45, quarter till 10. Some more time with Lindsey Kahn, Associate Professor, National Security Affairs, Department of the U.S. Naval War College, talking about situation with Iran and the Middle East. Somebody texted in, TT, outstanding, great uh, guest, educated, knowledgeable, articulate. Well, yeah, she grew up in Algiers. What would you expect? <laughs> Professor, let me ask you this. Let me phrase the question this way. Why should the United States care about what uh, Egypt thinks, about what Jordan thinks, about what Syria thinks, about pick a, insert the name of the Middle Eastern country here, thinks about our response with Iran after ta- uh, the Houthis that are their, quote, did you say, did you correct me when I said proxy group last time? No, I, I wouldn't say I corrected you. The so. Gave me my, an alternative only, view, uh, phrase. What I gave was it? you an alternative, yeah. So they, they are supported by Iran, but they do not do Iran's bidding necessarily. Gotcha. That's all it, yeah. So a proxy group, you usually kind of like think a, of a proxy as, as like a puppet, but just, they, kind of like they're a, a little cat. bit more independent. They feed yes. it, and every now and then the cat will come by, and every now and then not. Sometimes, sometimes not, right? That's perfect, yeah. Okay. So with that being said, um, why should we care about the U.S. response to that, about what other countries think about the U.S.'s response to that in the Middle East? Well, the bottom line being, unless you want to fight everyone on everything all the time, then it's useful to get other states' cooperation in what you want to do. <laughs> so, um, you know, un- well, unless no, you laugh, you want- but I'm telling you, there are people that think that we should have that foreign policy and don't understand the. And I don't know that this would even go into subtle or nuance. I think it's it's a little more direct than that. But how important it is that you have allies in the region, even though they don't always act as your proxies, to, to use the phrase. No, you're you're right. I, I shouldn't giggle about that. Um, why should we care? Well, you have well, a delightful we... laugh, so it's okay. But go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. Um, why should we care? Well, uh, because when we want to do things in the region— um, Using force or coercion is one way of doing things, but it's a costly way of doing things, and it can escalate and be more costly in the future. When you want to get things done, it's frequently more effective, more efficient, um, and, and, more, and preferable overall to get things done via incentivization or agreement. Um, and so to the extent that we can get our interests served by those less coercive, less violent means, that's actually better for everyone. That doesn't mean that coercion is never useful, um, but coercion needs to be calculated. And if you calculate it wrong, then it can cost you more than the thing was worth in the first place. As part of a response calculus, can you attack the Houthis without involving Iran at all, since they're not their proxy, but Iran supports them? Is that possible or inevitably does any response mean you're going to be going back to the to the country that supports the group whose behavior has uh, either attacked you killed your people etc well i think uh, i think you can certainly attack the houthis without worrying about being directly attacked by iran yourself you know what will happen is if you continue attacking the houthis iran will continue sending them money um and sending them weapons to attack you back mm-hmm. right and so then it becomes a sort of attrition battle um, and Iran will find other ways to pursue its interests. Um, so the, the question is, does attacking the Houthis actually accomplish what we want to accomplish? Right. And, and that um, is, is where you want to think about the calculus of force versus some other way of doing things. Well, it might not be a bad idea to try to determine what is it that we want to accomplish. 
that's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean obviously in in the in that specific thing in that specific context, we want them to stop firing missiles at our ships at Israeli linked ships, um, and and we want them to um, sort of uh, stop threatening shipping in the area. That's what we want. That's our aim. So why do the do the Houthis not want to do that, and why? What's their beef with the United States or with the international, uh, with, with the world, and why are they doing this? Well, they don't have a beef with the world. They have a beef with Israel and with the United States and the United Kingdom. Okay. Uh, and so they're targeting shipping that they think is connected to those things or that they think will be viewed as connected to those things. They're, um, and they're, they're Professor, beef, Professor, wait, let me jump in. As a result sure. of what happened with Hamas and Israel back in October? Or this was yeah, going on so, before then? No, the well, kind of. The beef specifically is um, that they want to show support for the Palestinians in the Israel-Hamas war that's happening right now. They were already supportive of the Palestinians in general, but when there was no war going on, that was not a winning uh, conversation for them to be having, right? Okay. So once it became a salient issue, it became something that they wanted to latch onto politically for their own domestic legitimacy and regional legitimacy purposes, right? So we talked about this last week. What they are doing is trying to establish themselves as the legitimate government of Yemen by showing that they can act like a legitimate government, and I mean showing this to their own people and the people of the region. The Houthis you're talking about now, not Hamas. That's correct, the Houthis, yes. The Houthis are doing this in order to demonstrate to the public we can champion the Palestinian cause. We can stand up to the Americans. We can stand up to the Israelis. We, you should support us and follow our lead. So how do the, what does the United States do most effectively? I hate to say placate because you don't want to placate, but to punish the Houthis for what they did to uh, the American uh, service people and yet um, work out some kind of agreement, arrangement, what have you, or is there any working out any agreement or arrangement so that they stop doing what they're doing? Well, the Houthis were not behind the attack that killed American service members. That was a different group. So, That's right. So that, that actually makes life easier for us because it means that the stakes with the Houthis are slightly lower, which makes negotiation easier. Um, I mean, basically, the, the question is, is there any punishment we could inflict on the Houthis that would be bad enough to make them think to themselves, you know what, it's not worth it? And I think the answer is probably no. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that we shouldn't inflict any punishment on them? No, we should, because that degrades their capabilities and reduces the number of attacks. But I don't think any level of punishment is going to stop their attacks altogether. I think the only way that you actually stop the attacks is to take away the the thing that makes those attacks useful to them, and that is basically to pursue a peace process in the Israel-Hamas fight. To give you an example of how complicated this is, the drone attack that killed the three U.S. service members, that was the Islamic resistance in Iraq, correct? Yeah, that's an umbrella group. It was one of the militias under that group. So we're attacking, so who did we respond by attacking? So we uh, we struck, um, I think, 80-plus sites in uh, Iraq and Syria that were affiliated with some of these militias under that umbrella group and also uh, with Quds Force um, uh, locations. So the Quds Force is the Revolutionary Guards 
um, force outside of Iran. So Iranian targets, um, but not in Iran. So that response was effective or not? Bottom line, before we let you go, in your opinion. Well, um, I mean, effective, we, we have yet to see whether it's effective. As we mentioned at the very beginning of the hour, um, it certainly demonstrated that you cannot strike and kill U.S. service members without any kind of response. That's important. But it also may have overstepped the bounds in terms of deterrence and led instead to escalation. We really don't know yet. Time will tell. If anyone thinks there is a simple solution to this problem, please download the Odyssey app, use the Rewind feature, go back and listen to this to try to follow it and understand. Lindsey Kahn, I can't thank you enough for your time. I'm sure we'll talk to you again. Do you have, like, uh, writings online or something where people can go and read more about this? I do, but not a lot about the Middle East, not recently. Um, But I do have a website, which is just LPCon on Squarespace. Um, but, you know, the, there is some great reporting on this recently by Reuters and a, and a couple of other wire services. I highly encourage your listeners just to go read the news. Can't hurt I to know. I don't know anything secret. <laughs> can't hurt to know what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Thank you, Lindsay. Appreciate your time. Have a good day. Thank you so you much, bet. Tommy. Great to talk to you. Same, Bye-bye. Same. 9.54, 6 till 10. We'll find out what Noel's got coming up when we uh, return on WWL. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 